reading from Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down, hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. What is going on and when or if it might end, Kelsey? Adrian and Mesh, this is really just a shocking moment and people are calling it a historic movement. Nearly two weeks of nonstop worshiping at Asbury University in Kentucky. The fire that started here at Asbury is reportedly spreading as students from nearly two dozen other college campuses have come here to take part in the services. And what got started here a week ago is showing no signs of stopping. How this encounter with the Holy Spirit started is Um, A group of students didn't want to stop worshiping, and then they received the Holy Spirit in honesty and in genuineness, and um, they started sharing their testimonies, and then it didn't stop. I walked um, into the chapel and saw a bunch of students um, worshiping together very um, intimately. It just, everyone was crying, hands were in the air. It was just showcasing the love of God in so many ways that I had kind of forgotten about. And um, I remember I was with a friend and we were standing in the doorway and I turned to him and I said, 
I don't know what they have, but whatever it is, I want this. I heard the singing and I said, okay, that's, that's weird. Why is this still continuing? Um, so I went back up and it, it was surreal. The peace that was in the room um, was unexplainable. And a couple buddies and I just went to run around to the different classrooms and barged in on classes and said, revival's happening. There's been a ton of healing from church hurt and from various traumatic events. There's physical healings, there's been calls that cancer's gone, but then beyond that, something that's like I think extremely incredible is I know this campus very well. It's small. We're less about, I guess, at a thousand students. And I know exactly which people on this campus hate each other. And those are the people that I have seen praying together, singing together, hugging, crying. Like I myself have had a list of least favorite people at this school and I have spent the week with them. And it's been like totally life changing. For some it is freedom for the first time. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from uh, desperation maybe. Uh, for some, it's freedom from addiction or whatever that may be. And for others, it might be a first-time commitment or really a first-time understanding of who God truly is. I feel like the first couple of days, I've just felt so much joy. Like, when I'm singing, I just can't help but, like, like my mouth hurts, my jaw hurts. I'm just smiling ear to ear um, and just being filled with so much joy. And I've never really liked praying out loud in front of people, but I've just felt so, like, bold in that, like to pray for people and allowing God to use me just to speak through me to people for what they need to hear. I used to have a really big shame about prayer. I used to, um, I never used to want to pray near people, pray out loud. Um, I had a big shame about how I sounded when I prayed. I thought I had to sound like this perfect pastor with these poetic words. That rooted itself in me at a young age and uh, Jesus like just broke that shame of how I felt and like and how I had put my personal image above what Jesus says about me and Jesus says that I'm his son and I'm beloved and that my purpose in this life is to just love him and to praise him. People have been reminded about the goodness of God and that his presence is special, that it's holy. And I think a lot of the transformation has been refocusing on Jesus. And some people have gotten healed and some people have come to Christ which are things we celebrate, but I think a lot of the times we are just so caught up in our schedules that we forget that God is always moving, and I think He's starting to intervene here. I mean, there's going to be commissioned services where we say, thank you for coming. I'm so glad you experienced and encountered the Holy Spirit. Now go to your family, go to your school, go to your church, go to your community, and tell them about it and pray for them and it's going to happen there too. So while it will fizzle at Asbury, because it simply must at some point, uh, I think that it will be global for a very, very long time. I don't know about you, I, I watch that, I hear about that, and I'm just not quite sure what to make of it. I, I've, I've never experienced a revival like that. Um, I've never um, been somewhere where 
there's just been a widespread sense of a tangible moving and miracles. Like, I was here for Harvest. Harvest was very cool. Um, and there were lots of people saved in uh, the church I was working at and the youth ministry I was leading. Uh, and, and maybe that was close. Um, uh, but just this sense of God is real and God's spirit is moving and we can experience that and people are touched by that uh, and there's just kind of manifestations of that, um, that would just be a wonderful moment to experience and to be a part of, wouldn't it? So hold that story and now let me tell you another one. I was on holidays some years ago. We were up in North Queensland some missionary was speaking. He'd just come back from the Pacific Islands and he was preaching about blanket demons. And blanket demons are these things that come and grab a hold of you during the sermon and you fall asleep and you don't listen. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's nonsense. Those people just didn't sleep last night, right? They, just, they should have got eight hours sleep like Sam Kerr, right? That, that's how you put off the blanket demons, to somehow attribute uh, that. That's got more to do with the person or the preacher or whatever, but I don't know that we need a demon to explain that. Uh, those two experiences, I think, capture so much of where we sit as 21st century Christians. On the one hand, we're open to the notion that the Spirit is real and God can move, and there's this other dimension to life. But on the other hand, we kind of hear stuff, and we're sceptical, and we doubt, and we have rational explanations for why it is that this stuff is unlikely to happen today. And some people who think that way, they've just misunderstood it and got it wrong, and we know better. Well, uh, when I was growing up, uh, the world was quite a, a dry, rational place. And we had to read The Hobbit in year eight. Um, and uh, year nine it was, actually. Um, and I wrote a book review, and um, the teacher did something that every student hates. She took my book review and she read it out in front of the class. And I said in my book review, I didn't like this book. It had all these goblins and dragons, and it's all nonsense. I, don't, I just can't connect with any of that stuff. It makes no sense to me. I just didn't like this book. And all my fellow students are sitting there going, oh, you're going to fail. <laughs> you can't say that. And actually, the teacher said, David's allowed to say this. If you don't like it, just say so. Have explanations why you don't like it. Well, that was the 1980s. In the 1990s, Harry Potter came out and fantasy books have been the rage ever since. And we now live in a world where our young people are familiar with spells and demons and fights between good and evil, um, or perhaps it's Lord of the Rings, or perhaps it's The Hobbit, or perhaps it's a remake of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There's trees that uh, walk and talk, there's mountains that move, there's waters that rise up, and, and the sense that somehow the spirits are real and animate the world, that's not a radical thought anymore. Kind of spirituality is back in fashion. But how open are we 
And, and what sort of a spirituality do we have as Christians? So um, as I kind of think about books like the, Hab- the Hobbit or, you know, I get that's a type of genre that's kind of imaginary, but it sounds not unlike some of the stories in the Gospels. So think about Jesus. He goes around the lake to Genazareth, to the Gentile side, and there's a man there who's possessed, and he's doing all sorts of terrible things to himself, and, and he's naked, and Jesus casts out the demons, they go into animals, and they jump into the sea. I mean, you and I know that story, and we go, yeah, we can believe that. Blanket demons, I don't know, we can't believe those, but I can believe that story. But really, if I told you last week that I met somebody who was possessed, and I exercised the demons, and the demon went into their pet dog, and their pet dog ran down to the lake and jumped and drowned itself, you'd go, nonsense. You wouldn't believe me. In fact, it's not just that story. There's a whole lot of stories of Jesus. Uh, He has four um, exorcisms. Paul uh, is often casting out demons. As we work our way through the scriptures, let's just look at a few texts. Um, uh, We saw last week, there is this sense of a spiritual warfare between Jesus who comes that we might have life and have it to the full, and Satan who comes to destroy, to steal, and to kill. And that battle is always being played out. Or in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples on mission. What do you think people are going to report when they come back from mission? Oh, guess what? This many people got saved. This many people believed, right? This is what we get. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to your name. Seems like there's a lot of demons around and it's not all that unusual or strange. What is radical is that the demons submit. Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's his description of what's happening when 72 people are going out on mission and a whole lot of demons are submitting. I've never heard a mission described like that, right? Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And then Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Uh, I used to be a dean of a cathedral. I've sat through a lot of ordination services. I never saw the bishop put their hands on any presbyters and say, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. That's not the liturgy we use. Uh, And then Jesus says, however, do not rejoice that that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, yeah, spiritual war is something, but actually there's a more important thing. Uh, Some other scriptures, Ephesians 6, you'll know this one. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's Paul writing to the Ephesians. That's the church where he got chased out of town by the gold and the silversmiths. You would think, hang on, your battle was against the people, the locals. But Paul is saying, behind that, whatever earthly opposition you face, actually the real opposition is against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Is that the way you conceive the opposition that you encounter? Uh, 1 Peter, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Do you think Satan's real? Yes, we'll all say yes. But what's he actually doing? Do you conceive him as intentionally prowling around, not just kind of laying out temptations and sitting... No, there's something proactive, intentional and vicious, like a lion seeking to devour. Uh, And we will be tempted. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So Satan is seeking to devour us in part by tempting us, inviting us to live other than for God. Now, you might say, hang on a sec, I thought we were doing a series on work. How come we're suddenly talking about spiritual warfare? And the answer is because part of the work that Jesus does of bringing the kingdom is actually to exercise demons. Because what are the demons doing? They're killing and they're destroying and they're bringing about disorder And the temptations of Satan is inviting people to worship created things rather than the creator. And Jesus is undoing that, restoring order, reorientating creation towards worship against creator. And that's part of how Jesus brings order. And so one of our responsibilities, one of the ways to conceive the work we've been entrusted to do is spiritual warfare and resisting temptation. So, why does a story about I exorcised the demon this week and the pet dog went and drowned itself in the lake, why does, it, why does a story about blanket demons sound so foreign to us? Why do we think that's nonsense talk, right? Well, I... Before we jump into Revelation 12, and we'll do that in a minute, I just we, we need to understand why it is that we think the way that we think. So let me give you a quick little mud map. Um, before the 1500s, 
everyone conceived of the world as enchanted. So there are spirits, angels and demons who are kind of running around. So if your crops failed, if the rains didn't come, if, if you uh, caught a disease or you know, one of your children was suffering and died, or it, it was, the explanation was usually demonic. You see, life was kind of normal. It had some routines. The rains came and the crops fl- um, flourished. And, but when things went wrong, then somehow there was a, a spirit that intervened, so people imagined, um, and, and that explanation, that crashing in of the, the sacred, the spiritual, into the secular world was what went wrong, right? And a story like Blanket Demons makes sense in that kind of a worldview. Uh, but then something happened in the Reformation, uh, and, and it wasn't just theology, like science is growing, um, but uh, there's, there's a shift, and, and the reformers start talking about the priesthood of all believers. So it's not just uh, a priest who can read the Bible and interpret the Bible, or who can pray, or who can ask for forgiveness, or um, in, enter into God's presence. We all can do that. And if we can do, all do that, then in some ways, the work of every person is also... Um, the process of working out our faith and our sanctification. And, and so, in some sense, everything becomes sacred in the Reformation. That's part of what we've talked about in this series. In, in your workplace, as a, as a school teacher, you can bring order to young minds, or as a uh, medical professional or allied health professional, right? You, you can bring order to a broken body, or as a tradie, or whatever it is. This is a concept from the Reformation. Uh, And all of our work is something that we're doing to bring honor and glory to God. Now, that idea flips in the Enlightenment. So we're now talking 1800s to 2000, where our work was spiritual and now our work is instrumental. It's the entire explanation. So did our crops do well? It's because we fertilized at the right time. It's because now we got an agronomist to tell us how much moisture there was in the soil and what types of nutrients, and that's how you, like, this is why things flourish. And so God becomes two steps removed. It's like God is the the watchmaker who makes a watch and winds it up and then sits back and lets it tick all by itself. And we in our worlds imagine that when we fertilize, when we water, when we exercise, when we apply balms, these are the reasons that things happen, that things get better. There's a one-to-one connection between our actions, between the cause and the outcome. And God is somehow, um, at best, a designer, and at worst, absent and unnecessary. But it turns out that type of a world is dry. It, it, it leaves us in what some authors call a spiritual malaise. And I think our world has felt that, and there's a very recent twist where somehow we think a world without spirituality is hollow and pointless and directionless, and it's back on the agenda. And so now we're 
able to buy crystals or watch fantasy movies or have conversations about um, uh, inner passions that we believe are uh, spiritual voices inside of us. Except our spirituality is self-referential, right? We get to decide uh, our spirit uh, and interpret that and the direction in which we should live, not God. Um, and, and I still think we're essentially secular, right? So uh, if I'm sick, I'm still rushing off to the doctor. Uh, if my crops are failing, um, I'm still uh, calling up an agronomist or uh, a gardener or a landscaper or whatever it is. Um, we're not, uh, you know, mixing up potions and, and uh, we're not um, pricking pins into dolls or... You know, we don't think in those kind of terms. So, our spirituality, our assumptions are played out somewhere in those last two categories. We think an enchanted view of the world is simplistic and naive. That's what they used to think in the Middle Ages. Or maybe that's what they still think in, who knows, Africa or Pakistan or the Pacific or somewhere, but we now know better. Really? Is that, is that right? I, I'm not so sure it is. We'll come back to that. Let's jump into Revelation 12. What's going on in this passage? Um, Paul, uh, sorry, John is uh, writing at a time where Rome is beginning to persecute Christians. You can't just say, you know what, the emperor's a bad guy, he's doing the devil's work. That'll get you uh, killed and will get Christians persecuted. So, John uses a Jewish genre of literature called apocalyptic and he writes using symbolism, which Jews know how this works. They, they could have interpreted uh, John's texts and got the meaning. Uh, so those who had ears to hear would hear, and those who don't won't get it. So that's what's going on. So we need to get some of the symbolism. So at a, at a high level, here's the simple symbolism. The pregnant woman is the people of God in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, and Mary personifies that. So it could be any and all of those three. Depends at which point in time we're talking about. How do we know this? Well, for instance, there's 12 stars, which stands for, that sounds like Joseph's dream, doesn't it? Stands for Israel. So that's who the pregnant woman is, any or all of those. Um, the serpent is clearly Satan, and the child is clearly Jesus. So that's uh, just dwell a little bit. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, it's fascinating, um, Satan appears to be in heaven and have access into heaven. Kind of happens in Job, doesn't it? You know, Satan just turns up in the royal courts and God says, ha, have you seen my servant Job? And goad Satan, as it were. And we're getting a little bit of this here too, where Satan at some points in history, perhaps not in the present, um, appears to be uh, in, in heaven, whatever that and wherever that is. Um, anyway, Satan has been hurled down to earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings, the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. 
where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So let me say a few things that emerge from this vision in Revelation 12. Firstly, Satan is real and powerful. He's not like the fairy godmother. He's not some figment of the imagination. He's not the alter ego. He actually is real. He is an enormous red dragon. Red because he's angry. Seven heads, seven crowns, which is a number of perfection. Uh, Ten horns, um, which is a number of fullness. Uh, And a head, which is a place of authority. Put all those together, you're getting a picture like this. Satan is a perfect, complete version of an angry demon that has power and authority. Right? That's what John is trying to say. Such power that with his tail he can wipe out a third of the stars. The angels become demons. So Satan is real and is powerful. Second, Satan is accusing, tempting, stealing glory and devotion from God. So uh, in Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser. So imagine people coming into the courts of heaven on the day of judgment and um, Jesus says, oh, this is one of mine. And Satan's there saying, oh, no, he's done this or she's done that. or That's Satan's work to somehow accuse us of being unfit to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven because of the evil things that we've done. And Satan is also at work. He's been cast out and he's down here and he's tempting us. Why? Because he wants to undo our good works and the glory that comes to God when we reflect his image. Now, why is Satan doing this? Does he want glory for himself? Possibly. Does he just not want it to go God? To go to God? Yes, somewhere in between those two. So the natural state is that we worship and reflect glory back to God. Satan says, worship idols. Trust yourself. Don't worship God. Don't glorify him. So somehow uh, Satan's doing that. Thirdly, I want to say it's clear this is not a war between equals. As strong and as powerful as Satan is... He's no match for Jesus. He might actually be a match for Michael and the angels. It's possible that that battle goes on. um, But it's clear that uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is decisive. The outcome is unambiguous and Satan loses. I think uh, we're used to spiritual warfare being a concept between two equals. So if you read Harry Potter, right, 
you're on your edge of your seat through the entire series. Is Harry this young, innocent, naive, um, he's got to grow and mature versus Voldemort, this kind of more uh, worldly wise, sinister, mature, uh, evil force. Who's actually going to win out? It's unclear. And most of the time, actually, you think it's probably going to be Voldemort. Well, spiritual warfare in the book of Revelation is not like that. Satan is no match for Jesus. Fourth, the church is both pursued and protected. So Satan is down here roaming the earth, um, uh, waging war against the faithful children of God and the woman flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. And so that woman might be Eve going to Egypt when Herod's trying to kill Jesus, or it might be the church in 60 to 70, which flees out of Jerusalem and avoids some of the persecution that happens of Jerusalem. And it might be the church at any other point in history. And it's all of the above. The church is both pursued and protected. Now, there are some other themes that also play out in the book of Revelation. Um, we're not working through the whole book this morning, uh, but let's just comment on a few. Um, we're here as witnesses. We have a role here in this spiritual warfare, and it's to be witnesses. In fact, we read in Revelation 12 that they overcome by the testimony of their word. So our words contribute somehow, our testimony, to the overcoming of Satan. Uh, secondly, in the letters to the seven churches, the churches are victorious when they do certain things. If they're not lukewarm, if they don't lose their first love, if they don't soil their clothes, then they can be victorious. So somehow, churches are participating and even winning in this spiritual battle when they remain faithful to Christ. Third, in the book of Revelation, Satan will be finally defeated. So the outcome is unambiguous, but the final outworking of Satan's judgment and casting into the abyss is yet to happen. He's still wandering around and that will happen in full when Jesus returns. So we're getting this picture that um, across various scriptures that we read this morning, but particularly across the book of Revelation where we focus just today, that there is this movement, right? The, the world is made good. Uh, Satan tempts Eve and Adam and, and the fall taints uh, all, of world, all of the world. Um, and Jesus comes and begins a process of re redemption. And we're invited to work and to be part of that bringing of the kingdom. 
but it won't fully happen until Jesus returns. And we're somehow part of that third phase where the consequences of the fall are still present, where Satan is still active, and part of our work is to participate in this spiritual warfare and to bring redemption and to anticipate restoration. So let me try and close with a few um, practical tips. Firstly, is the world enchanted or not? I want to challenge your and my assumptions that somehow the way we used to think before the 1500s was simple and naive. So let's go back to my sermon I'm listening to about the blanket demon and being cynical and dismissive. Is that right? So when you wake up in the morning and and you think, I ought to do my quiet time, I ought to pray, but I really just feel like rolling over and going back to sleep. Is that just purely physical or is Satan really actually tempting you in that type of way? Are those two explanations mutually exclusive? I'm not sure they are. I wonder whether we need to recover something of a more enchanted view of the world. In fact, it's really only in the West where we have a disenchanted view of the world. The rest of the world still views all of creation as enchanted. And guess where the church is doing well and where the church is in decline? So whose truth is it, or whose lies is it, that the world is not enchanted, that there is no spiritual dimension to life? Maybe that's part of the lies and the tactics of Satan, and he actually makes himself small. Now, it's more complex, right? There's truth to both, but um, I think we need to challenge that assumption. Secondly, your temptation is not just about you. I think we live in an individualistic moment and we have this notion of to sin is to do something that harms and offends others, which means we imagine there are these things that are kind of inconsequential and they somehow don't matter. So what I think in my mind, what I look at on my computer screen, what I do with another consenting person, how I spend my money. They're not spiritual. Nobody's getting offended or hurt or nobody's being wrong there or so, you know. And even if I do slip up, well, I can repent and ask for forgiveness. And and I want to say to you, Satan is inviting you to not honour your Creator, but to trust in your own pleasures and yearnings and seek them, the created things, and believe that somehow they will bring you fulfilment. You're being invited to either trust God or trust Satan. So there's a much bigger playing field than just you and your individual desires and there are no consequences so it really doesn't matter. 
So the next time you find yourself tempted, I hope you think there's a bigger canvas at play here. And you recall Paul's words that you're not being tempted beyond your means and there's a way out. Now let's put that in the positive. Um, not only is it a bigger canvas when you avoid sin, but also when you do good. So now your life and your words are a witness to the king. And they're part of how we overcome. And I hope that that inspires you, like John is trying to inspire the churches in the Revelations about how to be victorious. Keep your first love. Don't soil your clothes. Don't be lukewarm, be full on for God. Those sorts of things are us participating in the uh, eternal battle between light and darkness, between life and death. And it's us showing our allegiance to our king. Fourth, Satan is waging war and the church is protected. The mistake is to separate those two and to fall to one side of the ledger or to completely to the other. So one version says uh, Satan is waging war and the church is not protected. The church is one generation from extinction. To be alarmist. I want to say it's not. The consequence of this text is that God is protecting that there will always be a church, but the church that's protected will also always be experiencing persecution. The amount of persecution goes up and down. The manifestations of the persecution change and twist. But those two dynamics are always at play. So, we should not be overwhelmed or depressed and think that somehow the Western church is about to fail and implode. Yes, we're being persecuted. But at the same time, we're protected. And a witness will remain. And lastly, invest in the things that will pass judgment. Because we're part of a spiritual war, because we're called to work in this life, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians, there'll be a day of testing and you'll be held to account for what you have invested in the kingdom. So if you have given second and third best, if you've built with straw and with wood, those things will be consumed on the day of judgment when the fire comes and they will be seen for what they are. But if you have given your best, then somehow gold is refined and made even more pure through the process of judgment. And it's that life which shines most brightly for God and which will be rewarded and continuous in the life to come. What we are living here and now is just the beginning of an eternal life. So work now in ways 
that will bear fruit into the future. Let me pray. Jesus, we're conscious that we live at a time where we're so quickly dismissive of spiritual things, where we're so uh, persuaded by explanations that are naturalistic, that are about us as the cause and the effect that brings about the change. We want to just acknowledge, God, that uh, not only are you real, but also Satan is real too. And that he's prowling around looking to devour us. And so, might we be people who are faithful, who trust in you, who are loyal to you, Jesus, and to your kingdom. May our behaviour, may our actions bring glory and honour to you. Spirit, convict us of the places where we are prone to trusting in ourselves and to turning good things into idols and imagining that somehow they will bring us meaning and hope and fulfilment. Jesus, only you do that. Help us to resist Satan's lies to live for you and to be part of your kingdom coming and Jesus return soon and bring it in full, we pray, for your glory. Amen.